and family. That has been our emphasis in the past few weeks with lessons on faith and on the family. And we're emphasizing family today. There's no more important sphere in which the Christian influence must be felt than in the family, than in the home. And truly, if every family were a Christian family, this world would indeed be a foretaste of of the home of the soul that awaits the faithful. But the process of making every family what God desires it to be has to begin with me. It has to begin with my family. It has to begin with yours. And we have to have certain ingredients or characteristics, if you will, in order to make that family what God would have it be, in order to make it a Christian family. And so we're looking at the word family, as each letter represents a vital ingredient in the Christian home, including love, which is the foundation of a great marriage and of a happy home. And the word family begins with a letter F and represents the father. The letter is right where we would expect it to be if it represents father at the head of the word because the father is the head of the home the spiritual head, the spiritual leader in the home. And he must follow the Father in heaven. He must set the example as one who loves God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind. And he must lead or point his children to the heavenly Father. And so to our earthly fathers, we say, show us the Father. We remember that Philip once said to the Lord, if you'll just show us the Father, it will be sufficient for us. And the Lord said, Philip, have I been so long with you, and yet have you not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And so to the earthly fathers, we say, show us the Father by feeding the family, as God feeds his family, providing not only physical food and providing for one's own household in that material sense, but providing spiritual food for the family. Show us the Father by your faithfulness in, in leading the family to God the Father, by the fear that you command from your children. And by fear, as we have said, we mean reverential fear, respect, the respect that the Father earns by setting that proper example. To the fathers, we say, show us the Father by the favor that you distribute fairly to each child not favoring one child above the other. And we remember Jacob and the problems that came to Joseph because Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his other sons. And it instilled in those other sons a deep hatred that led to hostile action toward Joseph. Father, show us the Father by the firmness of your discipline, being fair in that discipline, but being firm in that discipline, being biblical in that discipline, and following God's word in that respect. And yes, show us the Father by the fruit of the Spirit that you display in your lives. And let your family and all those who know you see that fruit of the Spirit evidenced in your life every day. Oh yes, the Father is at the head of the family as the F is at the head of the word family. And if the father is doing what he should do, then truly the family has that foundation 
that it needs to be the kind of family that God would have it be. But there's more involved than just the father, obviously, as we continue to look at the letters in this word, family. And the A must represent authority in the family. Authority and a respect for authority, something that is sorely lacking not only in many of our families today, but in every aspect of society today. There is that erosion of respect for authority. Young people need direction, and really young people desire direction. And parents must base their lives upon the precepts of God's Word. The father-child relationship must be governed by the New Testament. Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 1, gives us inspired teaching to regulate those relationships, as does the Ephesian letter in chapter 5 in regulating the husband-wife relationship. And that must be based upon the Bible, upon the Word of God. But let's think some more about this subject of authority and the fact that we need to reestablish that respect for the authority of God's Word in the family. Authority inheres in God. God has given all authority to Jesus Christ, and Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, deposited all truth into the New Testament through the apostles and through the other inspired writers of the New Testament. We have that deposit of truth. We have that authority in written word. And oh, it is impossible to overstate the importance of that fact. We have got to appreciate, be concerned about, and get others to be concerned about what is truly the singular standard of authority in religious matters. Because we live in a time when fewer and fewer people seem to be concerned about authority in religion as well as in the other areas, in many other areas as we have said. And there are far too many who are content to base their religious practice on tradition rather than upon the inspired traditions revealed to us in the New Testament. Yes, authority inheres in God. In other words, God has inherent authority. No one has given God his authority. Notice what God said to Abraham in Genesis 17, 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And you remember when Moses asked God, whom shall I say is sending me to Pharaoh? And God answered, I am that I am. I am that I am. God has inherent authority. In John 8, 28, Jesus said, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Jesus, as he walked among men, understood and appreciated the inherent authority of God the Father. And in the next verse, following that one, Jesus is recorded as saying, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And that leads us to this point. God gave all authority to Jesus Christ. And Jesus affirmed that in Matthew's account of the Great Commission. Remember in Matthew 28, beginning at 18, verse 18, 
Jesus came to them and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Then he commissioned them, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus clearly affirmed that he had been given all authority. But what is involved in Jesus having all authority? First of all, he has all priestly authority. Because the Bible affirms that Jesus is our high priest under the order or after the order of Melchizedek. A priest without beginning and without end. In other words, whose parentage was not known. Jesus was not a priest after the Levitical order being of the tribe of Levi because he was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. And so he is now our high priest as he reigns at the right hand of God. And when we say that he reigns at the right hand of God, that tells us that he's both priest and king, and he is the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5. And so he has not only all priestly authority, Christ has all kingly authority. He is, remember, Lord of lords and king of kings. The first gospel sermon that was preached on the day of Pentecost when the church or the kingdom, they're one and the same, when the church was established, makes that point. Because near the culmination of that sermon of Peter's, part of which is recorded for us, Peter said this, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Acts 2.36. He is both Lord and Christ. He is king. And many of those who heard that sermon on that Pentecost day were convicted of that fact. They were convicted of the fact that they had crucified the very Son of God. And Acts 2.37 shows this to be true. The words are these. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That is, what shall we do to be saved? And Peter responded by telling them they already believed, obviously. That was evidenced by their question. Peter responded, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized in the what? In the name of Jesus Christ. That phrase, as we have said before, in the name of, means by the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has that authority. He has kingly authority. He has priestly authority. But he also has all legislative authority. You see, his laws are found in the New Testament, and that is the last will and testament of the great legislator himself, Jesus Christ. This is the law book. This is it for all men, for all time to come. And he also has all judicial authority. In John 5, 22, we read these words spoken by Jesus. He said, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Judicial authority. He has committed all judgment to the Son. And in John 12, 48, we have those familiar words, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him, 
the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. We'll be judged by the word of God. One will judge us. It is the one word. It is the one word, the singular standard of judgment. And so Jesus Christ has all authority. And he spoke as one who had all authority, didn't he? You remember the conclusion of the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever walked this earth? The Sermon on the Mount at the conclusion of that sermon in Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were what? Astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. There was something very different about the authoritative voice of the Son of God because he had been given all authority in heaven and earth by the one who has inherent authority, God the Father. But now notice further that Jesus delegated authority to the apostles. And in John 17, in his prayer to the Father, at verse 8, he said to the Father, For I have given them given to them, and the them in that context is clearly the apostles about whom Jesus speaks. I have given to them the words which you have given me. Notice the emphasis on the words. I have given to them the words that you have given to me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus was referring here to the apostles as he said, I have given to them the words. Christ received the words from the Father. He gave them to his apostles. Later on in that poignant prayer at verse 14 of John 17, Christ said, I have given them your word. There it is again, the emphasis on the word. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And the apostles had the power to bind and to loose on earth what had already been bound in heaven. That's Matthew 18 at verse 18. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound. The tense is the perfect tense. Will have already been bound in heaven. In other words, what you are going to preach, what you are going to record, what you are going to write will have already been bound in heaven and given to you. Just as God the Father wants it given, just as Jesus Christ the Son gave it as he lived among men, and just as the Holy Spirit who was sent by the Lord gave it or inspired the apostles to record it. They recorded the will of Christ. And Christ endorsed it before they ever preached it. It had already been bound in heaven. And on one occasion, Jesus said to those apostles, He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me to the disciples. In Luke 10, verse 16. Did the apostles have any successors? No. There were no successors to the apostles. They could not pass on their authority to anyone. They could lay hands on individuals and did so 
in the early days of the church before this was completed in order to impart miraculous gifts for the functioning of the infancy of the church until that which is perfect, complete or whole came, the New Testament, but they could not pass on their authority. They could not give anyone the power to lay hands on anyone else in order to impart miraculous gifts. That was an impossibility. And so with the death of the last apostle, that ability ended, and with the death of the last one upon whom any apostle had laid hands, the miraculous gifts ended. And Paul describes that time, predicts that time in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13, at verse 10 saying, when that which is perfect, meaning complete or whole, I hold it in my hand, has come, it has, that which is in part, the miraculous, will be done away. Doesn't mean God doesn't answer our prayers and that God is not involved in our lives today, but he does it behind the curtain, as we've said before, not in front of the curtain through miracles, but behind the curtain through his providence, working through natural law to bring about his will. And as we noticed earlier, Jesus sent those apostles into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature. And the Holy Spirit was to guide them into what? Most of the truth. No, all truth, right? All truth. All truth. And that leads us to this point. The Holy Spirit did just that. He guided the apostles into all truth. Listen to the words of John sixteen thirteen. Jesus says to them, these are words spoken to the apostles. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Then notice John fourteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Remember what Jude admonished in Jude 3. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. As we've said before, that for all means for all time. Once for all time, delivered to the saints. And so the gospel, which is called the faith, as Jude refers to it there, has been once for all time delivered. And the apostle John warns us to abide or to remain in that doctrine, delivered by the Holy Spirit to the apostles and to the other inspired writers. Remember Second John 9 through 11. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ, I have it in my hand, has both the Father and the Son. And then John adds, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, this doctrine, this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. By greeting, the idea meaning bidding God speed and becoming a participant thereby in the error that is being propagated by those who have departed from this, this, the inspired singular standard of authority. John said, you depart from this, you don't have God. That's how important this is. That's how important it is that we respect that authority, the authority of God, because it is now residing right here. 
It inheres in God. It was delegated all authority to Christ, who in turn gave authority to the apostles, the other inspired writers to record it, and it has been once for all deposited for us here in written form, and this is it. Nothing else is coming. Nothing else is needed. And people in today's world must see this. We've got to settle every question in religion by what the Holy Spirit taught through inspired men. And notice I said what the Holy Spirit taught through inspired men, not what the Holy Spirit teaches, because He's not still teaching. He's not still revealing. His work of revelation has been completed. The Holy Spirit is not revealing new truth to anyone. The only way any preacher knows what the Spirit wants him to preach is by looking into this book, by looking into the Word of God. That's how the Holy Spirit has revealed God's will once and for all. The final deposit of truth is in the New Testament. That's the testament to which we are amenable and accountable today. We don't live under the law of Moses. All of the Bible is inspired, as we well know or should know. But the law to which we are amenable and for which we will be accountable before God is the New Testament. Remember John 12, 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him, the word that I have spoken, that I have authorized, in other words, will judge him in the last day. And to depart from this is to fall under the curse of God. Remember Paul's words to the Galatians in Galatians 1, 6 through 9? I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he emphasizes it. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have, been, have received, let him be accursed. How much clearer could the inspired apostle have made it? The, the authority, the authority resides here. It inheres in God. It was delegated to Christ who gave it to the apostles and the other inspired writers to record for us forevermore His will upon the pages of the New Testament. And that's the law under which we live. Oh, we've got to get people to see that and to come to fully appreciate it and then to comply with it. And in the family, that is the authority that must be exalted by the Father and yes, by the mother. And that brings us to the M at which we'll briefly look as we conclude and finish the word in a couple of weeks, the Lord willing. The word family, that is. Where is the letter M? The letter F is at the beginning of the word family. The father is the head of the family. Where is the letter M? It's in the middle of the word, right smack dab in the middle of it. That's right where it should be because the home's most important member may be the mother in many cases because the hand that rocks the cradle, as William Stuart Ross 
once ruled. It's the hand that rules the world. E.C. Baird wrote the words, There is a kingdom called the home where mother reigns as queen. The treasures fair that cluster there, not elsewhere may be seen. She loves this kingdom of the home, and here she builds her throne. The things of worth that bless the earth find here a safety zone. Here children live in blessedness protected by her love. With gentle sway she leads the way through wisdom from above. Her word, her smile, her soft caress, she rules her realm with these. With humble heart she does her part and conquers on her knees. Keep clean your kingdom, sweet and fair, O mother, fine and true. For in this fight for God and right, so much depends on you. And indeed it does. The poet Longfellow wrote, Even he who died for us upon the cross, in the last hour, in the unutterable agony of death, was mindful of his mother, as if to teach us that this holy love should be our last worldly thought, the last point of earth from which the soul should take its flight to heaven. And you know what Longfellow referred to, the Lord's words to John, Behold your mother, take care of her, take care of her. Oh, how powerful is a mother's influence. It cannot be abdicated to the babysitter because her influence is personal. It's perceivable by her actions and it's perpetual because it lives on in her children. Napoleon said the destiny of the, the, destiny of the child is always the work of the mother. Well, Indeed, the influence of the mother is indeed a powerful one. Think about these words. I took a piece of plastic clay and idly fashioned it one day. And as my fingers pressed it still, it moved and yielded at my will. I came again when days were past. The form I gave it, still it bore. And as my fingers pressed it still... I could change that form no more. I took a piece of living clay and gently formed it day by day and molded with my power and art a young child's soft and yielding heart. I came again when days were gone. It was a man I looked upon. He still that early impress bore and I could change it nevermore. That expresses the power of influence, doesn't it? But think of the godly mothers in Scripture. Sarah, Hebrews 11, 11. Think of Hannah, the mother of, of Samuel. She prayed for a son and God granted her request and she named him Samuel because he was asked of the Lord and she gave him to the Lord as she promised and every year when she came with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, she brought him a little coat and her son was one of the greatest characters in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and judge. And God blessed Hannah with three more sons 
and two daughters. And then there was Rachel in Genesis 30. She said, remember her words, give me children or else I die. That's rather ironic, isn't it, considering the attitude of many today in today's world. Many today don't want them, and when they become pregnant, they abort them. Rachel said, give me children or else I die. You know, woman has the unique and exclusive privilege of working with God through his natural law in giving birth to another precious human being. And that's about as close to creation as man can possibly get. You think about it. And yet, many women rebel against that honor and abort their children. Rachel had two, Joseph and Benjamin, and she died when Benjamin was born. But the story of Joseph's faithfulness to God is a story of his impeccable character. Did his mother have any influence over him? Surely she did. And then Jochebed, mother of Moses, her husband Amram, they had great faith. You can read about it in Hebrews 11, 23 through 26. Their, ba- their faith was both courageous and contagious. It was courageous in that they protected their child, didn't fear the king's edict to destroy the children, but they protected him. That showed courage. And then when we read about Moses, the fact that his mother was able to actually become his nursemaid and influence him throughout his life, and he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, surely his mother and father helped him to have that conquering faith. And Jochebed must have taught her son so well to love God that riches, fame, position, and a king's palace could not eradicate that love. It had been so deeply instilled. And oh yes, Elizabeth, Luke 1, Mary, who said he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant in allowing her to bring forth the Christ into the world. Oh, Mary was a good, moral, humble woman, a caring mother. She obeyed civil law. She obeyed God's law. And Jesus was subject to his parents. Luke 2, 51 and 52. Godly mothers. We need them to teach and train children. Teach them to develop proper character. Teach them the high cost of sin, the beauty of obedience, the preciousness of the Lord's church. Teach them respect. Teach them about the importance of a Christian home, the sanctity and the permanence of marriage, the importance of marrying a Christian, as we talked about in Bible class this morning. And showing them what a true Christian is throughout their lives as they reach adulthood and prepare to marry for themselves. Teach them to love. Teach them to love. Teach them to love the spiritual over the material. Teach them to love the family. And teach them to love God above all. As we close, Ira Douthit, Brother Douthit wrote, It took a Jezebel to give the world a human devil, a Jochebed to give us Moses, a Hannah to give us Samuel, and Elizabeth to give us John the Baptist. And God selected Mary to be the mother of Christ. This old world was lost through a woman, and there's not a greater power on earth to save the world 
than a real, true Christian mother. May the Lord, good Lord, give us more of them. What kind of mother are you? What kind of father are you? What kind of authority are you instilling in your home? We've looked at the F, the A, and the M, and Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll finish with I, L, Y. As we look at the family and the preciousness and the importance of family. But you know, there's a family that has paramount importance, and that's the family of God. And the most important question we can ask at this point in time is, are you a member of that family, the family of God? If not, you must be in order to ultimately be with the Father for eternity and with the Son, your elder brother, who can become your elder brother this very morning. Yes, as you obey the gospel of Christ, and enjoy the adoption as a son or a daughter into the family of God through belief that leads you to repent, to confess Christ, and to be baptized for the remission of sins, the Lord adds you to his family. And as you remain a faithful member of that family, even unto death or until the Lord comes again, then you'll see that family one day face to face. And what an unspeakable, incomparable joy that will be. Do you have that hope? If not, we pray that you'll obey the gospel this morning so that you can have that hope. And if you've abandoned that hope by waywardness, by turning your back upon the family of God, having become a part of it, come home as we stand to sing.